I think sometimes, um, you know, we get so good at speaking out that we forget how to listen. Let's listen to the other side. Let's listen to the other side. Bring that information back to our communities to try to move things forward. So it's a process of like conversations, um, building allyship, building coalition, um, and and inserting that critical and educational component. Hello, hello, welcome back to the show. Today, special guest, Dr. Cynthia Wang, assistant professor, Cal State LA, and she is spearheading an exciting new project called the Restorative Education Project. It is a way to have difficult conversations around problematic topics with people who may have a very different ideology than you. And in this tumultuous time, it's very important to be able to start and maintain a productive, constructive dialogue. So the first about 20 minutes is us reminiscing about our Pinecrest days and catching up on old times. And then we start talking about the Restorative Education Project and some of the topics that they'll be looking to grapple with. Um, we discuss the Heineken commercial, the Pepsi commercial. Um, we discuss LGBTQ activism. Um, she is a longtime friend. I've known her since I was 9 or 10 years old. We are part of the same Pinecrest family. The first Pinecrest school opened in 1951. And it was a boarding school in Van Nuys, started by Edna May Dye. And it catered toward the entertainment industry, children of actors, musicians, entertainers, etc. And um, it quickly grew. And by the time that I was there in the early, in the mid 90s, there was over a dozen Pinecrest schools all over Southern California. And they were known for their rigorous academics, top quality teachers and staff. We all had a huge academic advantage going forward. And I, um, I made the mistake of grabbing my uh, sixth, sixth grade yearbook and I was shuffling through it and looking at, at old memories and whatnot. And um, the, the credo for the school on the first page here says, she gave her best and expected the best. Uh, sums up the life and philosophy of the founder. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really sad that last year, uh, 2016, all the Pinecrest schools were closed permanently. Uh, my guest today, my friend Cynthia, she started a Facebook group. Um, class of 94 Pinecrest family group. And it really did feel like a family. Today's episode is dedicated to our friend, Tony Muna. Um, today is June 12th, 2017, uh, according to Facebook. It would have been his uh, birthday, 35th, 36th birthday. Uh, he passed away a couple months ago. Uh, very suddenly, very unexpectedly, it was very, very sad news to learn about. He was in New York. We learned that they were having an additional memorial service get-together here in California for some of the friends who couldn't make the funeral in New York. 
and I decided to go. You know, we were all sharing memories about him, like, oh, he was so cool, he was so friendly. He was one of my best friends. I kept hearing that phrase over and over again. But you gotta be a special, a special person for so many people to feel so connected to you and for that ripple to continue out for so many years to come. <laughs> uh, Pinecrest served preschool all the way up to eighth grade. I think our school only went up to sixth grade, so we graduated in 94. According to the yearbook, our favorite radio station was Q105, now Q1047 out of Ventura, California. Favorite TV show, Saved by the Bell, the college years. Favorite music group, Salt and Peppa. Favorite movie, Ace Ventura, Peck Detective. Favorite song, a tie between Shoop, Salt and Pepper hit. And again, um, Tony Braxton, not Tony Braxton, Janet Jackson, Janet Jackson again. You know, some of the songs that I think of from that time, um, Snow, Informer, that was a big hit. Uh, UB40, Red Red Wine. Um, Pogs. Pogs were big. Today we have fidget spinners. Back then it was Pogs. And I think they were outlawed at our school because people were throwing the slammers at each other like weapons. Uh, check the link in the description. Go to their Facebook page if you want to attend the event. If you're going to be in the Pasadena area, definitely check it out. Uh, it's a wonderful organization. It's a wonderful movement. So, Dr. Cynthia Wang, um, professor of communications is that correct professor from i'm a, an assistant professor of communication at um, at cal state at cal state la okay um and it's funny you uh you pronounce my name wang which is correct um it's also correct to pronounce it as wong oh no so way. people at cal state la have been pronouncing it wong i did not because know it's that. closer to the chinese one oh. but i have been using wang my whole life so you yeah know, like you and i we've known each other since how old were we like Ten? Nine? <laughs> That's so weird. It was what, 91, 92, 93, yeah. somewhere around no, there. No, 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 Wait, It was before that. No. We graduated in, oh, we graduated in 92. Yeah. No. Or 93. 94. Something. <laughs> it all blends We're giving blends away our age at this point. <laughs> they don't know what we're graduating from in 94. Could have been preschool. It's true. They totally don't know. Preschool. Totally preschool. <laughs> That's hilarious. And, um... I mean, so we went to elementary school yeah. together, which is crazy. And you started at Pinecrest in fourth grade? Fifth grade. I was only there two years. Only two years. 
You were such an important part of my Pinecrest experience. I was? Yeah, everyone was. That's true. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know how to explain to the listeners the, the bond that I feel from all the people that I know from Pinecrest. And it's like, you have work friends, you have college friends. If you're lucky, you have high school friends. But those years, I don't know how they created that nurturing... It was just the philosophy of the education, I think. I think so. And because think, that was amazing. Yeah, and we also had a small class. That's true. So we had like, was it 50, 40? It was split up into two groups. Yeah, it was about 40 or 50, yeah. I think. Yeah. But it wasn't even that like we talked a lot. I don't think we yeah. had an actual conversation mm-hmm. until now, but it was sort of um, being in the same environment, mm-hmm. right? And having that natural connection of, oh, it's Pinecrest and... Yeah. Um, you know, when Pinecrest closed, I think that was really the catalyst uh, that got all of us back together. I went yeah. to, you know, visit Kevin um, uh, in uh, what is it? Philadelphia uh-huh. and um, hadn't seen him in like 22 years. I haven't seen you in like 20 some odd years yeah. either. So it's uh, the Internet is I mean, so crazy kind of like awesome. when a when a loved one dies and the family gets together and you say, you know, I wish we would have gotten together for better circumstances, but it does reunite people. And so when Pinecrest closed and you made the Facebook group and I probably added eight new friends that day. Yeah. And and we just keep the, and we kept on sort of finding other people. So it's yeah. like I was in touch with maybe five Pinecrest people. You were in touch with a handful, but they were a different, you know, a different handful. Right. I think I think that's how we got back in touch, right? Was yeah. through the group and mm-hmm. um, and at this point you know, I think most of us are at least connected through the group, which is yeah. uh, which is pretty pretty cool. Because if you think about it, childhood is such a strange time. You make all these friends in school, but the only way that you see them of your own volition is either in school or arranged by your parents. So when you when we graduated, and you know, it, it was sixth grade, um, <laughs> you know, we were what eleven at the time. Yeah. So we couldn't drive. Nope. We couldn't, like, Pinecrest was one of those places where people were coming from all over. Right. So it wasn't like we were in the same neighborhood either. So we couldn't walk to each other's houses. We couldn't really bike. Um, for me, there was this really interesting added um, added element of being from an immigrant family. And so uh, we didn't really, uh, we didn't mingle with uh, non-Chinese people or non-Asians, which, you know, sounds kind of funny in my head, but that was kind of true. And it wasn't any sort of active, like, we're going to stick in these communities. It's but comfort it was, level. Absolutely. It was yeah. exactly, it was just comfort level. Like, these people speak our language. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. I, yeah, I think about, you know, today, my brother is 10 years younger than me. Totally different experience of keeping in touch with his friends. Yeah. The people that he knew, liked, and trust from junior high school, they just had each other's cell phone number and they kept in touch. We didn't have that. We didn't have that. You know, if you move, if you did have one, one another's landline from your yearbook, mm-hmm. if they moved the next year and you got lost in the shuffle, mm-hmm. you lost your friend, mm-hmm. you know? And I remember getting in touch with um, Jesse Fletcher found me. I don't know how he found my number, I think in high school. I was like, wow, that's so cool. Like he found me. And kids will never know the struggle. Yeah, they will never know the struggle. The struggle is real. Jesse and I play chess together. Chess to this, with friends. To this day? I'm really bad at that. So yeah. he's really... Okay, so Jesse is really good at chess. <laughs> to where it's not we fun need, anymore. We, we really need to put this podcast on the, on the Pinecrest page. Oh, let's do it. 
Um, yeah, Jesse is really good at chess. And I think we played, when I first started getting back into chess, we played 20 games or something. I don't think I won a single one. And, you know, he's he, he's so great. He's like, after every after every game, he's like, a good game. And I'm like, Jesse, <laughs> I just, you, just, you just beat me in five moves. Oh, no. <laughs> but what if you're playing words with friends? Oh, would he still beat you twenty in a row? I don't know. I haven't played him okay. on Words with Friends. I, when it first got popular, I was addicted, but I, I sort of fell off when I got my new phone. But it's fun. I mean, I mean, I'm a I'm a word person more so than a math person. So Words with Friends, my uh, immigrant mother <laughs> plays this game with me. She beats me like every time. I'm like, Mom, are you cheating? How do you know these words? <laughs> Or she's just trying every possible combination for like the highest point. She total. might be. <laughs> she might be, and then she makes fun of me, being just like, "X I, how is that a word?" Or what is it? X X I or Q I? Yeah, or it is. Like, I think X-I both are words. Q, right? I think both are words. Yeah. And she's like, "That is not a word. That's cheating." Yeah. And like the, the the system is not telling me that I cheat, which then makes me think about back when we played Scrabble on the board, right? Um, how did we sort of know? Remember, like we would take the dictionary yeah. and be like, is this actually a word? And you'd have that check. Um, when you're playing words with friends now, it's like we've become lazy in terms of, I, I shouldn't say lazy. Um, but we've they've cataloged all the words for you. Right. And so there's this you know, new norm of even game playing where you can just try things. And if it doesn't work, when you push submit, it's not going to let you submit. So, right. Um, and with Scrabble, it was if your finger's still touching the tile... Right. You could pull it back. <laughs> or in chess too, right? right in right. chess, it's like you, once your fingers left the left the uh, the piece, that was your move, and that was it. Exactly. You know, and That's uh, yeah, and, and electronically, what's uh, what's interesting is you don't have those take backs, right? The only way you can have a take back when you're doing an electronic medium is when um, is when you move, and it's a horrible move. And you, um, and then you work, there's this like collaborative thing with the person you're playing with to go back a move because it's their turn and they have to do something to, in order to right, reverse right, the right, move right. or something. Um, you like forfeit your turn or skip or something. And then yeah, they yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it's like a redo. So I have anyway. to, back to Pinecrest, I, we have to give a shout out to our, our fallen friend. Oh, yes, uh, Tony. Tony Muna. This was, we, we went to um, a memorial of sorts. He had passed away about a month, two months ago, something like that. I think it was a month, yeah, a month or two ago. On my way to the memorial service, I passed a Pinecrest. There's, there's still a few campuses. They, maybe they haven't changed the name yet or this just the sign is there. And because of the circumstance and everything, you know, I was flooded with so many emotions and memories. But what, what do you think about it? that had this effect on specifically our group. I can't speak for other people that went there more recently, but there's, there's got to be something that I can't put my finger on that made the environment so special or the school so special. What do you think that was? I would be very curious to see, because Pinecrest uh, is a private school, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not... Um, so. An expensive private school. Right. So we are talking about uh, sort of a concentration of kids who come from certain socioeconomic status. It's not to say that um, all of our parents were well-off 
or very well off. By I was any on means. scholarship. Right. <laughs> um, it's not to say any of our parents or families were well off by any means, but I do think that because the parents were willing to invest um, that much, like just money. Sure, sure. It was um, a priority. Exactly. There was a certain value value there. Um, I would be curious though because I was just having a conversation with a couple friends who have kids, and one of them is looking into preschools and um, looking at just how much preschools cost. And preschools, I mean, I don't know how much Pinecrest cost back in the day. I don't know. I'm assuming it's a few hundred a month or something? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Most preschools definitely. now are like topping, you know, a thousand for three days. Right? Wow. Um, is this for one-on-one attention? Oh my gosh. I don't think so. I mean, I, the, the, you know, I, obviously I'm, um, I'm not a parent and I'm not, you know, I, I don't, do research on this uh, necessarily, but it does sort of blow my mind that the monetization of education in a way um, has become sort of more and more prevalent. And I'm wondering if there is something there that leads to that leads to that bond because because I could very easily say yeah it's because we all shared like we come from families that share the same value of education. Right, right. Um, and the teachers also shared that, and it was also a small campus and things like that. But who's to say that we're not seeing the same things now, or is it because there were fewer Pinecrests um, right. back then? It's a good question. I mean, it's it's probably just simply a, a combination of all those things. You know, people that value the education. Obviously, the teachers, they were... They were amazing teachers, but they were there because they loved to teach, not because of the benefits. You know, you're working at a private school, it's different. Right. You know, so. And I think Pinecrest also um, really maintained a commitment to um, the integrity and quality of the teachers that they hired. So I remember learning algebra in sixth grade Yep. with Mrs. Floramonte. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I didn't get algebra again until I think 10th grade at that point, but it was priming us to sort of think about it not even like to think about math in a certain way, but to understand um, what the boundaries of math are or, or where they aren't. Right. And um, you know, I remember learning about how, how to solve, how to solve X in sixth grade. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you don't do that. And, and, like, do, do you remember Mrs. Wick's class? Absolutely. Yeah. I cried over an assignment that she gave us. Oh, yeah. She was, I mean, she was tough, but she was, like, she was good. And I 100% credit the fact that um, I don't have an issue with grammar to her because she was so good at teaching us grammar. I agree. <laughs> um, diagramming sentences. Yes, I remember that. Um, you know, the fundamental building blocks for for good writing, yeah. right? Um, and I've used that my whole life. And I, you know, I don't think I'm a very good writer because I don't like writing, but it's mostly like content organization and things like that. When it comes to grammar and you're doing like that fine edit, that stuff's easy. Yeah. And it's because of, it's because of Mrs. Wicks. So shout out to Mrs. Wicks. Yeah. Hope she's listening. No, <laughs> you're, you're hundred percent right. I felt like it was a prep school in a way and it was way far advanced like you said the example about getting math what is that it's plum dried plum oh my goodness try some yeah before i go crazy with it yeah you don't have to like it it's a i have to think about it it's weird yeah 
Almost like Chinese dried plum sour. Oh, interesting. It's going to grow on me. I bring it for long drives. What was that? It's going to grow on me, I'm sure. (laughs) I bring it for long drives because the sourness keeps me awake. That's a good call. Yeah. Um, Yeah, um, (laughs) no, no, we were talking about the diagramming senses. I remember the the assignment that brought me to tears. We had to outline, I don't know if it was a, a textbook or a primer or some book that we had to outline. And in sixth grade, I wasn't really equipped to have like a month long assignment where you have to do a little bit every day. I procrastinated and I saved it until the night before. My parents were like, what are you doing? You know, so I had to like pull an all nighter, <laughs> but I'll never forget that. First you know all nighter I mean? you ever pulled? Oh yeah, most definitely. And it wasn't an all nighter. I'm sure I just stayed up like a couple hours past my, be- my bedtime, but they challenged us with concepts that at the time we didn't feel like we were ready for maybe, but looking back, it, it just, it splits your head open, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, well, I can think about a sentence like a math problem, mm-hmm. you know? And like you said, most kids don't get that till high school. They don't get that. There were things, I mean, um, this was, this was back in like third grade. Um, and we were, we were um, taught to identify and name all of the, all of the, bones in the body oh wow there's yeah. a lot of bones so yeah um 206 right 206. i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gonna say 180 something <laughs> no i think it was 206 203 or 206 um i was a biology major that's really <laughs> um and it wasn't I, I mean it wasn't like naming each like you know each segment of right, the finger right, or something right. but we knew that fingers as a whole were the phalanges and right, then you would have yep. the tarsals and the metatarsals and the ulna and radius and the cranium and the scalpel and everything, right? And that was, I mean, incredible how much knowledge they just yeah. sort of pumped into us. That's Even junior now. high school or junior anatomy, 11th grade anatomy class type stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it is, which to, you know, I, I've actually never taken anatomy. <laughs> um, amazingly, I wanted to be a doctor. Maybe that's why I'm not a doctor. <laughs> but I, I can name um, every bone of the body. Obviously, you know, the, like the... Um, not, not if, if, if like each spine had a name, I don't know that. Sure, sure, sure. But the big parts of it yeah. is like, we, um, we learned that Mrs. Mrs. Browsler made us memorize all the presidents. She was such a cool teacher. Yeah. I remember also at some point in my life, might've been Mrs. Browsler. Lincoln Johnson, Grant Hayes. Lincoln Johnson, Grant Hayes. <laughs> yeah. Like, what was it? Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Adams, Jackson, Beer, and Harrison, Tyler, Polk, Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce, Buchanan, Lincoln, Johnson, Grant, Hayes. Wow. You have a good and the Garfield after. Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland, Harrison. Stop Cleveland, testing my memory. McKinley, Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, Eisenhower, no, wait, I forget. <laughs> but still. But, it, it, you know, for, for a while we knew that. Um, we had to do the Gettysburg Address. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I don't remember it. <laughs> Let me, let me ask you this. What percentage of your academic success do you contribute to your time at Pinecrest? That is such an unfair question. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it doesn't have to be, uh, you don't have to say, you know, 25%, but you can, you can point to something that. I think a lot of it. Yeah. Because coming from Pinecrest, um, I remember going into, because I did public school for the rest Thereafter, of the time. Yeah. Um, and I remember everything, <laughs> well, everything was relatively easy because it was essentially 
doing Review. Pinecrest over mm-hmm. until around 10th grade when I took chemistry for the first time. And that, or was it 11th grade? 11th grade when I took chemistry for the first time and that just killed me. So I think once I hit 10th or 11th grade was when it stopped becoming review and I had to learn new things again. That's saying a lot. That's a lot of years. It's a lot of years. And, um, but I think, you know, really importantly in that, um, it, it created a really solid foundation of quality learning and Mm -hmm. quality, like quality education. So it wasn't, I I think, um, you know, a lot of it was, it, it wasn't this, I can't speak obviously to public school, elementary schools. Um, but the amount of, um, attention that we had to pay to our work, uh, was like, that was really, that was really big. We could not have something that was grammatically incorrect. We could not do a math problem without writing all the steps out and being really clear about that. So I think that it wasn't even, do I know how to, do I know how to diagram this sentence? Do I know what a, what a, uh, preposition is right everything it, that a squirrel can do to a tree exactly except, except of. of the squirrel has issues of the tree yes <laughs> another mrs wicks credit yeah. <laughs> that's so crazy and not only the quality but the experience you know the a experience. lot of attention was given to the experience it was attention but it taught us to give attention to what we did right and i think that beyond sort of like knowing that a squirrel can't of a tree um, it taught us how to be really meticulous in our own work. Granted, I have to say, there are times when I'm not meticulous, <laughs> but there is. Um, but I think that there was that foundation to say, this is what you need to sort of be careful of, and this is how. Like, so um, I mentioned I'm teaching. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm a, an assistant professor, um, and. I'm still learning in terms of how to teach better. And one of the things that we say is really hard to teach is um, is how to care. And it's not necessarily about empathy. Because on one hand, it is, right? Like we, um, what I teach is, um, is at the intersection of like critical and cultural theory, identity politics, and how like digital media sort of intersects with all these different power dynamics that we're seeing. Um, so of course, you know, like part of it is teaching, you know, like you need to care for people who are different than you and, and things like that. But what we actually say when we say to care about teaching is caring about, like, sorry, not caring about teaching. To care is not even necessarily on that level, but it's to care what type of work you produce, right? Um, to have pride in your work? Yeah, to have pride in your work and to produce a piece of work that is, that is quality work. And I'll be honest, it's something that's, I think, really hard, and it's something that I don't think that I achieve. There are definitely times when I just say, this article needs to be done. I don't care how good it is, it just needs to be done. Um, because that becomes the reality of, um, of of that situation when you have limited time. Sometimes things just need to go out. So it's really balancing, you know, caring about doing a good job and getting things out. But I think what Pinecrest really, you know, taught us was that when we cared, <laughs> you know, there's some really, like... That's where the magic happens. It is, but it, it's also like a value. It's also a habit. It's also a mentality for work. It's a work ethic. Right, will, right, right. You know, um, so if that's the case, I think that it probably taught me quite a bit. I agree. That's a really long response. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 it's great. And I, <laughs> I mean... We're talking about education, 
And I know when I'm talking to people that are thinking about college or about to go to college or what have you, writing their personal statement, I try to help them understand the difference between high school and college. Like in high school, you're responding to a bell. You're memorizing things. You're following the program. But in college, you really have to learn how you learn. Mm -hmm. And a good teacher will kind of, you know, illuminate that in you. So I, I, after four years of college, I stopped my formal education and went into the quote unquote real world. Um, what if there's such a vast difference between high school and college, what would be the equivalent difference between college and you're teaching grad students, right? I teach both. Yes. Okay. So what would be the, the jump, the intellectual jump from, Oh, that's a good question. It's a really important one. So in college, uh, there's a, there's a pyramid, there's a, it's called the Bloom's pyramid of learning. And, um, it starts with, I'm actually going to pull it up because, uh, it's a pretty cool thing. Is it like the food pyramid? A little bit. Or is it more like the hierarchy of needs? I'm just filling time while you look for it. I know. <laughs> you don't sorry. have to answer that. <laughs> okay, it's the Bloom's Pyramid of Learning. And so the very, very bottom of it is remembering, right? It's It goes from remembering to understanding to applying to analyzing to evaluating to creating. Okay, And so when we're looking at our syllabi or when we're thinking about teaching, we want to try to – so you sort of have to – it is – you know, it, One builds it on the next. Of, yeah, like – yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was going to use a fancier term, but I'm like, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't even think of the fancier term. So you have to remember this stuff, right? You have to just remember, okay, this is a clavicle. Um, you know, this is a cranium, uh, whatever. Then you have to understand it. So the next step is understanding. Oops. There goes the yogurt. Oh, that didn't spill. That's amazing. It's very slow yogurt. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> You know, so in undergrad, or actually really in elementary school, you're you're usually at the remembering and understanding, and you're hoping that, um, you know, your students will understand the significance of what's going on. Then when you get to, like, applying um, applying and analyzing. That's more the critical thinking stage, yeah. That's more yeah. the critical thinking stage, and that is what we expect um, in uh, in undergrad, right? Like, students should have the ability to put different scholars in conversation with each other to say, these are the discussions, these are the um, debates that are going on in this field, and what are they, and to sort of talk about that. Um, and, and hopefully even sort of make some sort of intervention, right, um, and apply it to what they see in the real world. I think in grad school, we're really looking for some sort of a theoretical intervention. So you understand the theory, you know how to apply it, um, can you take it to the next level by doing research, looking at the world, and saying, um, this is what came before theoretically. This is a situation that's going on. What type of theories can I sort of grab a hold of to, I don't want to say create new theory because that is, um, is I think really uh, difficult to do and often um, it, it's a little bit of a red herring. That's not what you should, I think that's not what you should be doing. But it should be to seek greater understanding through looking at the intersectionalities of theory to um, use that basis to try to push the boundaries of our understanding of the way that the world is. So in grad school, you should be doing that. And um, I think that 
once you're out of grad school, that is what we continue to do. So um, grad school is really training to be, um, you know, like I tell my grad students, you're my future colleagues. So when I go into class, I want to have a conversation. I don't want to lecture uh, because we're all trying to figure some of this stuff out together, right? And that is um, is why I think actually teaching, um, I mean, grad students and um, undergrads are both rewarding in their own way. Um, it's also why teaching grad students, um, I always say it takes a little bit less, I, I shouldn't say less effort. It's actually a lot of effort to like moderate the discussion, but they're able to be a little bit more autonomous in terms of leading it and um, and coming up with, with their questions and talking to each other, right? Like rather than just talking to me all the time. So. You used the term when you started, you said theoretical intervention. Yes. I don't think I'd ever heard those two words put together like that before. And the first thing I thought of was quite literally change the world. Meaning, like, you, if you hear of a student whose science project gets bought by NASA or something like that, yeah. that doesn't happen very often. If it does, it makes the news. But what I'm hearing is that you're expecting your grad students to be thinking in a way that you're not just impressing your teacher or satisfying your own curiosity. You're impacting your field in a meaningful way and you're, you're causing change to come about by either thinking about it differently or by showing that it can be done differently, something like that. Yeah, I think that would be, a, that would be an accurate, um, accurate thing. We have to be really sort of, I think, um, cognizant of the fact that academia often functions in a little bit of an ivory, ivory tower. So even theoretical interventions to say, hey, I have something else to say about theory X, or maybe theory X isn't quite as um, accurate as we thought because look at this case out in the real world that doesn't quite fit theory X, then that's a sort of theoretical intervention is tying what we see in the real world back to the theory and say we need to shift the theory a little bit. So that's a theoretical intervention. The, the problem, I think, with theoretical interventions is that it often stays in the ivory tower, and that's something that um, – so you know, I, I know that we've talked about the restorative education pro project and all of that, which we can go – into a little bit later, but I do think that there needs to be an effort um, because theory is nothing more than just recognizing certain patterns and trends and significances um, of, of everyday phenomenon, right? And drawing those patterns on a broader level together to say, hey, in general, this is what happens, right? Um, you know, in, in general, uh, What's like a good example of this? In general, uh, technology has um, accelerated our society, right? So that's a theory. Um, then you say, okay, well, technology has ex accelerated our society. Certainly, driving in a car is a lot faster than walking or taking a bike, right? That's a technological advancement that has, that has allowed us to move faster, um, in the world that in ways that we have not before. It's an objective fact, yeah. Exactly. What happens on the 405 at 4.30 p.m. on a Friday afternoon? Not acceleration. Not acceleration, <laughs> right? So then we have to sort of, you know, rethink that theory to say, to say, hey, clearly this is not a theory that holds true. It's not a law, right? In physics, we have laws. Uh, theories are things that are malleable and interchangeable. Um, but in general... Right, the more advanced technology you have creates the hope of acceleration, the hope of greater efficiency, or um, or whatnot. Um, 
similarly with things to do with um, like identity politics. So if we were to take um, something like, and, and, and this is where it gets a little bit squishy because you know we can talk about it in terms of theory, we can also talk about it in terms of just social cultural patterns. So if we're talking about something like, like, I'm trying to think of it. Clearly, I did not come prepared for this either. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's a free-flowing conversation. Yeah, we don't have I'm debating notes. between talking about the echo chamber as a sort of concept or, um, or interrogating, like, like, you know, patriarchy or something. But both are sort of these frameworks that the world um, exists in, right? And, uh, and, you know, we can say, let, let's take the echo chamber because that's, you know, probably more pertinent. So it's like, okay, we have the echo chamber. We have more divisive opinions. We have, you know, false news or fake news or, you know, post-truth or um, Post-truth, or wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to talk about that too. That's a really fun <laughs> That's a fun one, um, right? Like we have the the rise of all this, and we also have like if you post something, we tend to have similar ideologies. I'm going to repost what you post, and then all of my people on Facebook have like similar ideologies, and it creates this echo chamber where we're only talking to people that we agree with. Um, and I think because we have people that we agree with, we tend to maybe be less patient with people that we don't agree with. Um, which is, I think, a very fundamental problem that the Restored Education Project is trying to address. Um, but if we were to take that sort of the echo chamber um, as a theory, we can also be just like, but that's not, that doesn't happen all the time, right? Um, we still do have conversations over the aisle. We, in fact, have um, people who are really trying to portray that. Pepsi was horrible. Um, Heineken was a lot better. But what happened with the Heineken commercial is that it still got like, reamed by, it did. Um, yeah, by yeah. people. Surprisingly. Uh, yeah, well, well, surprisingly and not so surprisingly, right? And it became a point where it's just like, yeah, it is absolutely problematic and we need to talk about how problematic it is. You Tuesday know, nights on Comedy Central, 10.30, Moshe Kesher's new show. Just kidding. What? <laughs> My wife and I went to a taping of a show called Problematic on oh, Comedy really? Central. It's called? With, yes, and it's this, it's this premise. It's taking, you know, issues that have come up and talking about it with people who have different viewpoints. Right. And what I'm hearing from you is when you uh, preach to the choir from your ivory tower, you create an echo chamber. <laughs> yes, but sometimes it's not even the ivory tower, right? right. Like sometimes it's within our own communities when we're trying to, um, trying to sort of like s subvert um, whatever, pow whatever power structures that we see in society. Um, now, uh, and I'll, I can get more specific later, but I'm just trying to set the. There set is the no date. later. There's only the now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I was actually, I was actually, um, I was actually uh, telling my partner last night. I was like, it's probably really good that this is getting recorded because I don't like to write, and if it's recorded <laughs> somewhere, this will be great. Um, but the whole sort of like, so the Heineken commercial, I really like as an example for what is um, is what I think is very worrisome. Um, what happens in the commercial in case someone hasn't seen it? Right. Pause here and go look up Heineken commercial, but yeah, right. <laughs> in case you're driving, what is uh, it? Right, exactly. So the Heineken commercial is, uh, they got six people in three pairs. So they paired each person up with someone who um, disagrees with them ideologically. So for example, they paired up a feminist with like a men's rights 
person, maybe not quite an activist, but someone who believes in men's rights. They paired up a climate change denier with somebody who uh, says that climate change is a scientifically proven fact. They paired up a transphobic individual with a trans individual. And so those are the three pairings. And what they did is, you know, they met each other and they, uh, there were three stages, I can't remember what they They worked were, on a project they, where they built something they together. They built a bar. Yeah. So they built a bar together and they had to work together and build a bar or whatever. And then after they built the bar, um, they, the producers showed them, and they were together, and they showed them the video that they had recorded before building the bar, which was, you know, I, I guess asking questions like, what are, your, what are your opinions on, like, trans people, or what are your opinions on whatever, what are your opinions on climate change? And it became that moment where they realized that the person that they just built a bar with and had a good time doing, right? Like they were laughing, they were talking. It was like all very Literally like, built a bar, sat down and had a beer at that bar you just built well, and come to find out that they think opposite of you. Not quite. So after they built the bar, they showed the video and then they're like, you now have a choice. You can either walk away or you can sit down, have a beer at the bar you just built <laughs> right, and right. talk about it, right? And, um, and it was one of those things where it came out. And at first, everyone was just like, this is fantastic. This was the antidote to the horrible Pepsi commercial, which was, you know, Kylie Jenner saving the world by giving a police officer Pepsi in the middle <laughs> of a protest, um, which is ridiculous. And Should have been Sprite, obviously. Should have been Sprite. Or like root beer, right? Root beer is like so much more delicious. I love root beer. Um, so a lot of people were saying this is the antidote to... Um, it's a feel-good moment. I can share it, it on social fantastic. media, show that I'm in support, all it these has different a good, things. It has a good message. Yeah. It talks about conversation and how conversation is important. Um, and when something is praised that much, you know that it's going to get reamed by other people. And so um, the, the problems with the commercial, which I completely agree with, um, is that, you know, one of the first things is, like, oh my God, did the trans person know that they were going to be entering a space with a transphobic person? That becomes an issue of like... Personal safety. Personal safety, potential for phys physical violence, just like really, really... You know, it was one of those moments where it's like, okay, there, there might have been some really interesting consent issues and con like consent issues and problems that are going on there. Um, again, if we were really to intellectualize it. So I can also go on about how um, issues of consent are super important but they've also like they can also fall into being sort of a parody of a gender studies 101 class um, and and I'll go into that later because this is part of the scaffolding that I think needs to happen in education that we're trying to sort of address with the restorative education pro uh, project um, which by the way is just it, the, the restorative education project to reiterate is um, it's a multi-platform project where we're trying to figure out ways to have better conversations with people who have different ideologies or different frameworks of understanding the world. And it's sort of deliberately vague, um, as I think is this podcast interview. <laughs> <laughs> you Nicely know, but, done. <laughs> right, but, but, but it really is trying to, I think, um, explore how can we sort of have that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, with, and so obviously problem, there's problems with consent there is problems with assuming a false equivalence. And I think that's the biggest thing mm. is, um, is that there, you assume that, right. The, um, the feminist who comes into the room and the men's rights activist who comes into the room come in on the same power level as granted them by society. That's just not true. 
right? A men's, you know, a men's rights activist is arguing um, because he feels his position of power, his privilege is being taken away because other people are being equal. That becomes like, or because women are being equal, right? A feminist comes from the premise that um, we function within a patriarchal society um, where women have, have not had equal rights historically, um, which is a historical fact. Um, and to come in saying that they both come in with equal footing given the historical context is a false equivalence, and that is what a lot of the the, thing, the, the things are about. Same with the transphobic individual and the and the um, and the trans individual, right? So you have these different power dynamics that are sort of inherent in that relationship as they're entering into that space, coming from that historical and social context that gets erased from the commercial. All of these are problems, right? And then obviously the biggest problem is that it's it's um, selling this feel good moment in order for you to buy more Heineken beer. <laughs> Right. So it, it, it also sort of almost like appropriates um, the, the struggles and the oppression of, of these groups for capitalistic gain, for a corporation, for, you know, to reinforce those, uh, those structures of power. So obviously it is problematic. Um, and I think um, a lot of people have pointed that out and, ri and, and rightfully so, right? Um, I also think, though, that we need to move beyond that. We need to move beyond just tearing down what we see. Um, That's because, a really good point, yeah. You know, because what I think is like, okay, we find all these things really problematic. You're telling me this. I said I like the commercial. You're telling me this. I agree. I completely agree. And then... <laughs> What then? You, you violently we, agree with each other. Yeah, I violently agree with you. I really, really agree with you, right? My point, though, is what then, right? We are in agreement. Are you going to stop here? Because what I'm looking at is I'm trying to move forward. I'm trying to say, uh, like, what is the recommendation from that then? Is it that we don't have those conversations? Is it that we completely deny the ability for one-on-one -on -one conversations to actually change hearts and minds? Because in my experience, being sort of being an activist in um, in the LGBTQ community and also in the Asian American community, the gay rights movement has progressed so quickly. I think because we had nowhere to hide, you know, not visibly, right? Like obviously, like you know, I'm Asian. I walk out into the world. I look Asian. I can't hide that. But in terms of being queer, we had nowhere to hide. In terms of like, I'm Asian, I go back home, my parents are Asian. My family is Asian. The community that I grew up with is Asian. We understand what it's like to be a racial minority in a predominantly white neighborhood, which Thousand Oaks is, <laughs> you know, and, um, and we understand that. And so I go home, that's a safe space for me as a person of color, right. right? When I go home, that is not a safe space for me as a queer person because where do all of us gay people come from? We come from straight people. <laughs> and who is... Um, who is most likely to cause the most harm to queer individuals? Their families, right? Just like domestic abuse. You know, if someone is killed, their spouse is immediately the number one suspect. Right, right. But it's even just like um, dis disowning um, LGBT homelessness is a really huge issue, right? And so it's almost a survival mechanism, I think, 
um, within the community to constantly reach out and to try to have conversations so that we can change hearts and minds. And look at how fast we did that, right? Uh, in 2008, Prop 8 passed, banning, uh, banning um, same-sex marriages in the state of California. 2008, we're less than 10 years away, and we legalized gay marriage federally two years ago. That's right. that's a 180 and beyond, yeah. That's the fastest growth. Like the, I, I think that's like the fastest civil rights movement in the history of, you know. And, and this is not to say that it's a done deal. Clearly, there is a lot. Like we still need to address so many things within the community. Just because something has been legislated doesn't mean that the culture changes, and doesn't mean that people's lives are actively. It doesn't mean that all people's lives are actively better because of this legislation. Yeah, you can't legislate decency. Ex- that's that's fantastic. I'm going to steal that. Oh, <laughs> please, please do. And I, I want to go back to what you said about the the power structure, you know, right. or um, the power dynamic. And you can't. What am I trying to say here? When when you're getting, what's that term? When you're you have privilege, and then people get equality, it feels like oppression. There's yes. a there's a yeah term. yeah yeah. The, um, I don't know if there's a term. I think that that's what. It Maybe is. yeah, <laughs> like beating around the bush. Yeah, the I bush. think it's. I think it's just. Uh, it's just when yeah. other people, when other people gain priv- gain the same amount of privilege that you have. It feels like oppression. It right. feels like oppression because it is a lack of privilege. If right. if you don't differentiate yourself as better than someone else, that's not privilege. That's just equality. So so yes, you lose privilege, but you don't become oppressed because of that. Right, <laughs> you know? right. It just feels that there's, way. It relatively, feels that way. Yeah. exactly. And and I think that's something to address. So. My point with the with with the um, the gay rights thing, right? Somebody else gains privilege, right? Um, gay people have the right to marry, which is a privilege. Um, it does not change straight people's right to get married, right. except it's for some. It's not a zero sum game. We're not exactly. taking away from your rights exactly. to get ours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or 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 demanding that you get gay married. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're not demanding that you you know, whatever. Um, but my point being is um, is being from the queer community and doing sort of LGBT act activism a lot of uh, what it's premised on is having those conversations and having conversations with people who stridently disagree disagree with you right um so what i'm saying and and we've seen that it's very effective and the sidebar here i will say is that the lgbt community um, especially the human rights campaign which is the the big sort of um organization that drove uh, marriage equality and is still a very important um, a very important organization they've come under fire for essentially being run by a bunch of white men right and excluding uh, trans individuals ex- excluding people of color and excluding women um, and all the intersections thereof um, so you know again if some say it wasn't because of the conversations it was because it was driven by uh, rich white men uh, who were gay and pushing legislation through and is still embedded in a seat of power. I don't deny that. Absolutely don't deny that. Um, however, I also think that a big part of it was because we had done, we had done so much outreach to people who fundamentally disagreed um, with us or, or, um, you know, or, or helped them see things in a different way or, or placed your own body there to say, I am a queer person. Tell me to my face that I'm a bad person. Obviously not so contentious, but say, this is my story, right? How is this any different from you? And that's a very effective, um, it's effective messaging, yeah. right? Um, shaking a finger at Heineken, right? To say, 
you tried to do this good intention thing, but you good intentioned wrong or wrongly or incorrectly. It's not, I, I don't think it's helpful. It's not constructive. It's not constructive. And does everything have to be constructive? No, of course not. Does everything have to go through productivity? Of course not. You don't want everything to be a solutions-based thing. That's not, <clears throat> that's not very helpful either because I think that then you do start denying the power source. So this is a scaffolding. It's like we need to sort of talk about this normative world that then gets ruptured by talking about the power dynamics and understanding how power dynamics work, right? And then we need to have conversations that are informed by our understanding of those power dynamics. Um, I think the fear and where society is not right now is, is at that stage to have informed conversations in power dynamics because so many people are not fundamentally informed about the power dynamics. And that's where I think education really needs to sort of come in. So when we're talking about um, sort of doing education, and it's, and it's really hard because, you know, um, you have to address sort of both. You have to rupture that normative framework of, oh, everyone's equal. Oh, you know, like everyone has the same rights as I do to say, no, actually, all of these things are often dependent on your skin color, your gender, your, uh, your class, your position in life, you know, even like where you live, are you urban or rural? Are you, are you, uh, you know, whatnot? Um, it's all fluid. It's all on a spectrum, right? It's all on a spectrum. And all of us have mm -hmm. certain privileges and disprivileges, right? Um, I have, I, I have things where I am less privileged in. I have things where I'm more privileged in. And I think that, um, the, that sort of conversation you did an exercise, a post on Facebook, oh, where yeah. you said three ways that you're privileged and three ways yeah. that you're disprivileged, unprivileged. Uh -huh. And I was like, that's really cool because people are putting it out there for people to see and it's forcing you to think about it, mm -hmm. right? And you said something interesting, the, the speed of the, the movement, you know, less than 10 years and all these things are happening. So having a little bit of empathy for the people who are resisting the movement that's got to be, you know, it's so in your face and you're, they're forcing people to change their ideology somewhat overnight. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I, I'm the type of person, you know, I'm, I'm a straight male. I'm, I'm a minority, but whatever. I'm privileged. I love to learn about people. I love to learn about human interaction. And so this environment to me is fun. Like I love the fact that I'm learning about a different type of person. A lot of people are not like that. So how do you, the people that don't want to learn, they're in this country too, and we have to deal with them as such. So how do, how do you deal with yeah. those people? That's a really good, like how, it gets back to how do you teach empathy? Yeah. How do you teach someone to be not selfish? And um, I think that's really the crux of, um, the, I don't have an answer because I think that's one of the hardest things to teach. Um, I hope that, and, and I mean, I hope that people can do it through reading and learning and everything, but you can't, like, so you can lead a horse to water, you can't make it drink or sure, something. Sure. Like, it, it's the same, it's the same idea. You can give someone a book, you can't, you can make them read it and take a test, but you can't make them internalize the messages in that. And, and I think that that's really hard. And I often feel that it's the people with the, it's not, that's not right. No, I'm going to scrap that. Whole thing. <laughs> um, yeah, you're, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right in that. Um, but, but here's the other fundamental thing that's, that's also the crux of it. So when we're talking about, quote, the other side. 
right? We're working on fundamentally different frameworks, right? So um, the Republican Party is not is not being like so. This is actually okay. So this is a conversation that that I had shortly after the election when we were all sort of flailing and I was flailing and everyone was like, "What's going on?" Um, and I had posted something to the effect of, I refuse to believe that all Trump supporters are racists and bigoted. I just think that that's not something that occurs to them at all, which is a problem. I agree. Let's set that aside. But if that's not, and, and uh, what was interesting to me is on that post, I got a bunch of um, pushback from people being just like, well, they are, <laughs> you know, um, or you know, don't, or, or when I say things like I want to listen to the other side or I want to have conversations with the other side, a lot of pushback I get from the left is don't provide, like, why are you providing a platform for that sort of racist um, and hateful speech? How dare right? you be a reasonable liberal? How, how or dare how you? Da- or, or how dare you um, try? Or you're not angry enough. I've heard all of these things. And, um, and I think that anger is really important. This is why I said n- not everything can be solutions-based, right? Because, because I think anger um, is a very important emotion. I think emotions are really important in this because I think without that, we just deny this huge um, part of everything. I got to stop you for a second. Yep. I heard this morning, like, anger is not a real emotion. It's just fear on fire. I was doing the dishes. I was listening to a podcast, minding my business. <laughs> and I heard that quote and I said, wow, I'm still kind of, you know, dealing with that. But I was like, give me something to think about. Yeah, that is an interesting thing to think about. I, I interrupted your train of thought and I apologize. <laughs> but I did want to bring up, it was either a, a study or a documentary or something. And it was people going door to door saying that they had had an abortion. And then they're talking to people who were against abortion. And after, you know, they say, can we, can I come inside? Can we talk about it? And I think it was like 100% or close to a success rate of once they're confronted with somebody who went through it, it forced them to be empathetic. And of course, this was on camera and everything. So who knows what's in their heart. But it's so easy to stay stubborn in your opinion until it's in your family, or until it's in your living room. Right. You know what I mean? Or until you have a conversation, right? Yeah. Um, there's a, here's another sort of endorsement is a, uh, JD Vance's book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy. So Vance is, um, a, a Yale trained lawyer. Um, but he grew up in the, um, Appalachian region and in sort of very white, poor working class, um, environment. And he sort of talks about, um, I think like he brings a lot of answers to, uh, what, what is the other, and I hate using like the other part of America because like it should be all Americans. No, it's true. Right. But what are rural, rural, white, poor working class Americans um, thinking? Um, And what, what we have to, I think recognize, which I know a lot of think pieces have said that, and there's a lot of back and forth on this. Right. But at some point we have to recognize that from what they're saying is they're saying that it's getting harder to pay their mortgage. It's harder to keep their house. They're, jobs are not there anymore and it's not it's not a hypothetical for them it's real um and i think we have to recognize um and that's the empathy part for us too right like we keep on saying we need to teach empathy 
how about for us too? So we can't just have empathy. Like it's, I don't think that it's, again, it's an individual decision for everyone, right? Because everyone has limited mental space and mental bandwidth for everything. But for me, when I think about empathy, is it just having it for people who have been oppressed? Yes, of course. And do we need to fight for greater empathy for people who have been oppressed? Yes, absolutely. It also goes for people who who may not have had the same experiences as me, who may be privileged in ways that I'm disprivileged, right? But that I may be privileged in ways that they're disprivileged, where the lines aren't quite so defined by by the social patterns that we've seen, you know, historically around race or gender or class even or whatnot. Um, but it's like, how can we sort of listen better and how can we be empathetic to people? How can we... It's like, how can we demand empathy from other people when we're not being empathetic to them? Right, right. Type of type of thing. Um, and again, you know, that falls into the danger of falling into a false equivalence, which is why this sort of back and forth empathy conversation needs to be predicated on an understanding of those power dynamics. It needs to be predicated on a historical understanding of of power and um, a social context of power and uh, you know an institutional understandings of power and things like that right um so it's really sort of like how do we have conversations without making it into a false equivalence and that is i think a huge huge challenge um that needs to really start i mean i don't know how we start we do it in education right we we, we do it in college we talk about uh power we talk about um you know trying to analyze things we talk about things from a social historical context that's part of education but what if people don't have access to that Right. What if people, you know, because education is privilege to be able to talk about oppression is a form of privilege. Right. Um, what if you don't have that? How much can you demand that? And, and, and do you cut them off? Do you do you disregard them completely um, if they're not if 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 someone is not able to sort of understand right away hundreds of years of historical context um, around around these issues? Um, my friend had a really great, um, uh, my friend Fran had a really great analogy for the, for this. And I think it works in many ways, but it's sort of like if we are all English speakers here and somebody walks into the room, um, speaking French, never spoke a word of English in their lives, never even heard English their entire life, never had a reason to. Never had a reason to, but they walked into the room knowing that they're coming into a bunch of English speakers. And they try and say, and they say hello and they start, and their English is horrible. We can barely understand it. It's all wrong. All the syntax is wrong, all the grammar, all the, you know, like clearly did not take Mrs. Wicks's class in sixth <laughs> grade. You know, everything is wrong. What's our response? Do we say, oh, no, just go away. You don't belong here. We're not going to engage with you because your English is so crappy. Or are you going to say, hey, that's a good effort. Let's keep on talking. Um, maybe I can help you improve your English so you can better have these conversations with us and understand what it's like in this English-speaking room, right? But we don't say, like, well, don't even try. Don't even try. Just just go away. I think right. most um, Americans would make fun of them first <laughs> for their funny accent. 
And then not a French accent. French accents can be, you know, like that. That's just like, oh, that's sexy. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's other. It's different. Yeah. You know? it so is it, the urge is to make fun of them, and then if they show, they're showing this effort, right? Mm-hmm. And then if they can get through that initial hazing, if you will, getting made fun of and enduring it and kind of being humble, then they'll be accepted very quickly after that. And then they will help with their French. Yeah. And I, I think um, I'm kind of giving voice to what, the guy's name, Vance. Vance, you J.D. Say? Vance. Yeah. I think there's this notion that, well, I mean, you said it. You have to be educated to get the historical context, yes. to build the scaffolding, to make the framework. And that is usually thought of as a liberal privilege, yes. right? I've heard it thrown around that Trump voters are typically not educated and they're white, et cetera. But people like, uh, Van- I'm sorry, I keep forgetting his name. Vance. That are probably eloquently ex- giving voice to that side. You got to have team leaders like that on both sides that are willing to listen to each other, show the example of the conversation so other people can duplicate it. Right. And that's rare. That's kind of a unicorn. You know what I mean? And also we have to remember that J.D. Vance himself um, sort of elevated himself out of of that and went to Yale Law School, right? Um, So... There, there's that there, there's that dynamic so as he well, lived both he's, sides he's living both sides mm-hmm. and um and uh sort of um i can't remember if it's in the book or not but there was a sense of being a class traitor right of being like oh, oh you're all fancy now you got your fancy pants like law degree right you're bad and bougie now right the thing is when we get to like the room of um let, let's go back to the metaphor because i think that um it's instructive in this um Let's say that French person comes in, tries to speak English, fails horribly, right? What is our response? So let's not answer that right now. Let's say that um, let's say that some really um, ah, this will be good. It's like a party. There's like an English room. There's a French room. There's like a you know uh, all sorts of rooms, um, and you have to be French speaking in order to um, get dinner at Mm. the party or get a drink from the party. So um, there are two things that you can do if you're an English speaker. You can be just like, oh, French, oh. It's 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 the language of privilege because that is what gets you like my piece of pepperoni pizza, right? Um, or you can be like, hey, maybe let English speakers also get a piece of pizza. Can you help us out, man? Right? Hmm. So this becomes, I think, another really big point that um, the restorative education project is, like we're we're trying to think about, is the process of allyship, right? And, um, And again, push back on the word allies. Right, there is an inherent power and privilege that comes with allyship. Yes, of course there is. Yeah, so let's set that aside. Um, I'm bringing all this up because it's like you know, these are the conversations that are happening. There's a lot of back and forth, and I want to make sure that we do address it to say that in this conversation we are aware of the problematics that um, that go on with these terms, with these issues. Stick a pin in it. Exactly. Stick a pin in it. Move on. So allyship. Yes, there are certain problems with it. 
you know, let's stick a pin in it and move on. But allyship is something that is important because if it gets me that pepperoni pizza, then I'm not going to go home uh, hungry, right? Um, if I reject that French speaker right off the bat, I just lost my piece of pepperoni pizza, right? Even the possibility of it is gone. Even the possibility of it is gone, right? Um, even the possibility of, of getting that pepperoni pizza is gone, um, which is, which is, f- what is, what is the phrase? Like, n- not to mention, like, if you wanted to say, oh, well, English speakers should also be able to use English to get a pepperoni pizza. Why don't we change the system to say English speakers can use English to get pepperoni pizza? Well, learn you, to you say that in French, and now we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the thing is, you, you, you can't, like, you're not even going to get your pizza now. Um, let alone, that's the phrase. It's like, you're not going to get your pizza, let alone trying to change the system right. to make it so that English pe- speakers get get their piece of pizza, right? Um, or, or to make English an appropriate language to ask for a piece of pizza. So, um, the problem is pizza has carbs and you need carbs to fight to create change. <laughs> so you're just screwed. Right. I, I mean, the, the, right. The analogy can, you know, can, can definitely work on. And, um, and uh, so, so there's that, right? So, so, and I think that that's where allyship sort of comes in, in, in that, um, in that we being like a queer woman of color, I think some of my most powerful allies are straight white men who sort of, who are willing to listen to me, right? Because they have a place at the table that I don't. Um, so they can either help me get to the table or they can bring my issues to the table. Right. But without them, if I alienate them, their privilege, and this is the definition of privilege, is that they can walk away. And it's not a matter of should this be the case. Obviously not. Obviously everyone should have a place at the table. Right. We should not need to, like, the quote is to pander to um, privileged people in order to try to create change. Of course. 100% agree. Vehemently, <laughs> violently agree. Right. Absolutely. But what's the reality? We sort of have to deal with the reality and having conversations rather than shaking a finger or castigate someone for trying to do good intentions, trying to speak English, right? Um, when they don't have to. And this is the crux of it is they don't have to. When a white person asks about race issues, they don't have to. It's not going to affect them if they don't ask. And that's the reality of the situation. It is sad that it is. It shouldn't be the case. Um, but if they ask, are we going to castigate them for it? Of course, my whole thing is, you know, like, well, if they ask me for my opinion um, and I give it and they yes but me, then the conversation's over. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> at least they have the opportunity. Right. They, absolutely. And it's just like if you're willing to listen and you're willing to have a conversation with me, I will, I, I will say anything and I will listen to you. Right. I will listen to you and I will have that conversation with you. Um, I don't like yes buts because it just denies my experience, you know, um, and that's like, just don't do it. You can you can say, well, yeah, okay, and this is my experience. So that's the answer it. is for everyone to take improv class so they can yes, yes and. and yes and and is like the best. Who who was it that said this? Like it was not me. I think it was might have been a colleague who said and is like the best. Was it Margaret Atwood? And is like the best word in the English language or something. Um, it's a conjunction, right? 
it's diagramming a, a sentence? It's a conjunction. No, uh, is it? I think so. Yes. Yes. Oh no, Mrs. Wicks is gonna kill me. <laughs> but it's a uh, it's in a rare category, is what I was trying to say. You know, you got yes. and but or. It's in that category. Yes, I, I, I think it's called a conjunction. We're going to yeah. have to look this up later. And it, it separates two <laughs> dependent clauses. Come on, people. You, you guys know what I'm talking about. Yes, but it is, if, it is an indepe- if the second part is an independent clause, then it needs a comma before the and. If it's not, if it's a dependent clause, then it does not need the comma. That is correct. And always use the Oxford comma, please. Please and thank you. Please, please and comma thank you. and thank you. Please. Ooh. Good question. Right? That's what I do. I ask good <laughs> questions. Keep the conversation so, going. The other thing we have to recognize, I think, when somebody does, when the French speaker does come into our space, is that we have to recognize that learning curve. And, and, and this, is, it, this is not just the French speaker who voluntarily comes into the place. This is not the privileged person who voluntarily tries to do good and maybe messes up really badly sometimes, right? Um, but I think there's a, I'll give you another analogy, which is, I think my favorite one to date, and it's the box of spiders analogy. Let me explain. So the world functions sort of in this normative, like there's a certain norm, right? Um, whether it's, it's, uh, the, the man goes out and makes the big bucks and the woman stays home to take care of the kids, right? Oh, child rearing is, is, um, the mother's job, right? Um, it's a premise that premise that feels natural Mm -hmm. Uh, marriage needs to be between a man and a woman Mm -hmm. because that is what is natural right Um, people need to be cisgendered you are only either a man or a woman right Um, like this is a really bad one but like oh you know black people are violent right this is why there's so many of them in prison um, those are the premises that our society often bases itself on. So across, you know, like gender, race, sexuality, even class, right? Oh, uh, people who go to Harvard must be smart, right? Um, and obviously these are like really, really caricature, like, you know, a- Asians must be really good at math. Um, and bad at driving. And really bad at driving, right? Um, especially Asian women. I mean, we're I don't know how you made it here safe. I have no idea. We're horrible. I, I know. I, I went through the Angeles, the Angeles Highway. I'm like a fucking baller. <laughs> um, right. So um, you know. So there are there are these assumptions that we have. To say that your assumptions are wrong, right? There's a there's a great my colleague um, at Cal State LA, uh, Rob Deshane, Dr. Rob Deshane, um, has said that truth is what makes you comfortable. So you take these things as truth because that's the world that you know. That is what makes you comfortable. What happens when you tell somebody that what they've known is true the whole time is not true? You shatter their foundation. You shatter their foundation. You release spiders on them. No, box of spiders. This is the box of spiders. Oh, so, so here's the thing. The box of spiders analogy is, is um, <laughs> um, I came up with it with my partner, Lorian. So we, <laughs> we were talking about... Um, you know, just how there is a box of spider, spiders under your bed. And for most of your life, you don't look down there. You don't even know that there's a box of spiders, right? Um, and you live your life, and you don't open that box of spiders. It's fantastic. They're in there, whatever, right? And then one day you look under your bed, and it's like, oh, a box. 
And that's that first step into being just like, maybe what I think of as normal isn't quite normal or isn't quite true, but I still don't really want to think about it. Right. Um, and, and that's someone, that's actually someone leading you to it being just like, Hey, look, maybe your friend being like, Hey, have you looked under your bed lately? <laughs> right. And, and so it, it, maybe it's like that, that friend who's like, who's coming into your, into your room is like, Hey, look under your bed. Oh, look, a box. I wonder what's in the box. And so, you know, when you're talking about all these different intersections, right, you can't, this is how I say you need to, we need to allow for a learning curve because what happens when you go from somebody who has never met like a gay person or a trans person or a person of color, never had a black friend, right? Um, or never had an Asian friend or, or, or whatever it is. Uh, and, um, and their wife has never had a career of her own, right? What happens when suddenly you say, Oh, and you know, you need to advocate for gay rights and trans rights and, um, black lives matter and uh, all these, like, you know, obviously really important things. It's sort of like taking the box and opening and all the spiders going, boom, what are you going to do if a bunch of spiders just at, like explosion of spiders? You're going to freak, freak out. and swat and, and swat and spit. Right. And, um, what good does that do? You just also killed a bunch of spiders, which by the way are very, uh, useful creatures Helpful. right right they kill mosquitoes they don't carry disease they're kind of cute if you think about it <laughs> but they look scary right, right? and right. so the process of, the process of being just like oh my gosh maybe what i think of as true or as good or good or right or whatever maybe that's not entirely good or right or true or whatever that's really scary doesn't necessarily have to be bad does it have to be detrimental like a spider no it just looks scary it's actually really helpful. It catches mosquitoes. Right, right, right. right. I see the analogy. Pests, yes, it is right? becoming clear to me now. But the thing is, so, so what we need to do is let the spiders out one by one. Because if you let them out all at once, people freak out. So, but if you let the spiders out one by one and you say, hey, spider, okay, look, you're, you're, you're a good spider. Maybe you belong outside. I'm going to take you outside and place you outside so I don't have to look at you or whatever. But at least you're alive and you're, you're doing, doing what it is. Oh, this spider. Oh, well, maybe, you know what? There's a few mosquitoes there. I'll put you in the corner. But if you excavate them one by one, they're less scary and they can actually be helpful and you have less fear of them too, right? All at once though, really scary. So this is to say that there is a, like we need to recognize that there's a learning curve, that people are not going to go from being completely not fluent in English to completely fluent immediately upon walking into a room of English speakers, right? We need to let people release spiders one by one. Um, so they can see that spiders are friendly and, well, maybe not friendly, but helpful. And um, and they don't freak out. I just read this thing that, like, spiders eat something like 400 to 800 tons of insects a year. Wow. For mil- sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, 400 million to 800 million tons of insects a year. So without spiders, we would have 400 million to 800 million more, more tons of bugs. It would be literally the biblical plague. There would be locusts everywhere. (laughs) It might be. But of course, then you're thinking about how many spiders do we actually have then? Anyway. Oh, that's a scary, that's another (laughs) scary, but useful thought. Scary, but useful. And, and, and spiders are preventing, I mean, you know, other disease carrying, um, bugs from um, propagating. So, right. That's great. I know we're, we're both short on time, so we're going to have to, um, wrap it up with that, but that's great. And I want to let people know where they can, um, find the restorative education project and perhaps even engage with it. 
Yeah, that'd be great. a website or a Facebook page or something? Yeah, so if you don't mind, two minutes on the Restorative Education Project. Please. It's a project that um, my friend Sujin founded, uh, Sujin Kim, who is an amazing uh, singer, songwriter, musician, and also uh, an educator, uh, Dr. Sujin Kim. And she founded the organization, asked me to uh, come on to help organize. And we're essentially a multi-platform um, thing. Again, kind of nebulous. We're trying to figure out exactly how we're going to sort of operationalize things. Doug, you've been really great in, you know, being willing to at least consider volunteering some of your time and um, expertise in helping us with the podcast uh, part of it. But we want to sort of think about how to have conversations um, across multiple platforms. And so our first um, event, one of the things that we're doing is having this sort of, is bi-monthly once every two months? Bi-monthly. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I was like going to say two, months, right? two weeks, but you're right, every other month, yeah. It's both. I've looked this up on the... On oh, the, no way. Yeah, it, it's both. Like, bi-monthly, bi-weekly is like every two weeks. It's also twice a week. It's very confusing. <laughs> That's so um, confusing. So I'm not going to say bi-monthly. I'm going to say we're going to have but this But it is once. bi. It's got two meanings. It's, I know. Exa- hey. 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 Confusing um, and appropriate. <laughs> scary and useful. <laughs> scary and useful. These um, contradictory uh, topics. Anyway. So we're having our first um, once every two months performance and dialogue series, and it's going to be at the ARC Pasadena, A-R-C Pasadena, on June 17th at 6 p.m., and it's going to be a combination of sort of workshop dialogue um, around some of these terms that we use, like when we say empathy, what do we mean? And we talked a little bit about that in this podcast. You know, empathy for... um, Empathy... for for all and you know for lack of a better term um but how do we practice that right um and we'll also have a a couple performances as well so there'll be featured performers there's an open mic as well and it's just a space for us to really start um start that process of being self-critical and think about how we can uh, listen uh to people who don't necessarily agree with us or share our same ideologies um so that's happening we're probably going to roll out a blog. I'm just saying we need to do a blog and the blog is just something that you have to do. Yeah. And it's, it's like, you just sort of have to do it. Totally. But, um, but it's also like, you don't, you don't need to like get someone's expertise to help you do a blog. You're just sort of getting it started. So, so that's going to come up and we'll likely be posting articles or opinions on, um, things like the Heineken commercial, right. Um, giving, giving sort of, I guess our opinion or our, um, our perspective on how we can address something like the Heineken, commercial and how that can fit into what we're trying to do in terms of having better conversations in terms of being self-critical in terms of um moving forward and and um, having that productive uh productive impetus um so that's and it's restorativeed.org so it's restorativeed.org is our website you could also find us on facebook perfect and, if yeah. you search restorative education on facebook you'll find it I think so. Restorative, I'll post a link. But. Restorative Education Project. Project. Yeah. Got it, got it. And uh, you said it's performance and discussion, right? It's performance and dialogue. Performance and dialogue. Right. Will you be performing at this? I will. I believe I'm going to be lecturing, which um, for the first one, we're just doing an introduction on um, why we think we need to have a sort of restorative education process, both on the side of like building that scaffolding, as we were talking about, um, but also, you know, as we know, since the election, um, our discourse online, off, in the political sphere, in the social realm, has become more and more divisive. 
Um, so this really is seeking how can we mitigate that device? Like, how what sort of rhetoric can we employ um, to sort of mitigate that divisive that divisiveness? Right? How can we think about it? How can we also sort of recognize that there is value? As I said, there is value to anger or 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 fear fear on fire. Is it fear on fire? Fear, fear on fire, fire. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that there's a lot of value in that, that emotions um, and how we feel about things and, and that and that fear, again, is really important, right? And we need to address it. We can't just box it up and put it under our bed because then the spider has babies and that's just, you know, even more scary. <laughs> um, you know, so how do we, how do we um, sort, of, uh, sort of address that and make sure that that's an important part of the conversation, right? Um, that that anger is important that we recognize that um, while also uh, figuring ways to move forward, you know, the, the calling in culture, right? Rather than calling out, how do we call people in? How mm. do we... That's a good term. I was going to ask you for a term that you could... Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's not my term. I believe Sujin came up with it. Yeah, it's good. Calling so in. Calling, calling in or, or, or someone else came up. I, I heard it from it. I heard about it from Sujin. I don't know if she came up with it or, or she sort of thing because I think sometimes... Um, you know, we get so good at speaking out that we forget how to listen. And that's, um, that I think is what we're seeing a lot, you know, in some activists, um, in some activist communities, um, with, with the important, important work that they're, they're doing and the important sort of, um, issues that they're addressing. Um, how do we support their work? Um, while maybe sort of being like an infiltration unit, right? <laughs> right. Sort of like spies, like, Hey, well, you know, let's listen to the other side. Let's listen to the other side, bring that information back to our communities to try to move things forward and maybe not to destroy them, but maybe like win over some of their people as well. So it's a process of like conversations, um, building allyship, building coalition, um, and, and inserting that critical and educational component, right? Like Sujin and I and everyone involved are all scholars or not all scholars, not everyone is a scholar, but we're both scholars and a lot of people involved are. So we're also trying to think critically trying to make maybe theoretical interventions um, in, in, in that way as well to, to sort of look at it from a meta level, look at it to see how it's practical and trying to connect that ivory tower with the rest of the world too. So the, we're tackling a lot. And um, I think at some point we'll need to really figure out what our focus is, but that's, um, that's awesome. what it is. And I have to give a quick shout out to um, also to the American, um, the commu American communities program at Cal State LA, who's been, um, who I believe we're going to either be partnering with or at least collaborating with. Um, they have some awesome programming at Cal State LA all through the fall semester um, on, you know, like the idea of civility. And um, that's very, very much in line with what we're trying to, um, that we're trying to talk about. So, so there's that. You certainly have your work cut out for you. <laughs> yes, this is why I've asked for creative leave from Cal State LA. I hope I get it. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So restorative education project, um, Performance and Dialogue, June 17th. Uh-huh, 6 p.m. in Pasadena. Dr. Cynthia Wang will be lecturing, but you won't be performing a, a song or, or anything? I don't think so. We're no, getting no we're getting other performers. Okay. Yeah. Will, you, will you play us out with a song today? I don't have instruments. I'll edit it in. Oh. Just say yes. Yes. All right. <laughs> Enjoy the stylings of Dr. Cynthia Wang. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Between
looked up with a frown and pointed out my heart line with the stress cracks all around. She said, why are you worried? What's in that little head? I thought a bit and this is what I said. Will I be successful? Will I be kind? Will I be the one to say whatever's on my mind? Will I be loving to my family and friends? Don't know what lies just right around the bend. I stepped outside, the rain has stopped, the sun was coming out. I decided to take my dog out for a run around the town. And when we stopped to rest, she put her paw right in my hand. Her brown eyes held a question, well, it's more like a demand. She said, why are you worried? What's in that little head? I thought a bit, and this is what I said. Will I be successful? Will I be kind? Will I be the one to say whatever's on my mind? Will I be loving to my family and friends? Don't know what lies just right around the bend. I called my mom and dad that night. We didn't talk about much, but in I can hear I'll always be enough That I'll be successful if I am kind I will be the one to say whatever's on my mind And I will be loving to my family and friends I'll face whatever comes around the bend successful if I am kind I will be the one to say whatever's on my mind and I'll be loving to my family and friends I'll face whatever comes around the bend everything it, that a squirrel can do to a tree exactly except, except of, of. The squirrel has issues oving the tree, yes. Another Mrs. Wicks credit. Yeah. 